0: Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Wednesday, June 10th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. The WHO's new official advice on mask wearing, do's and don'ts. The 103 year old retired Belgian doctor hoping to make a difference in the coronavirus effort. Archaeologists have uncovered an entire ancient Roman city without digging a single thing. Could going for walks replace your coffee habit? A Japanese zoo pivots to fashion. And an Italian woman who didn't let a little thing like brain surgery get in the way of her cooking. Last week, the World Health Organization finally updated their COVID-19 guidance to instruct healthy individuals to wear masks in certain situations. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention made this recommendation back in April, and many other nations and experts around the world had been recommending it for long before that. But in updating their guidance to recommend the wearing of masks, even if you're not sick, they did include a number of caveats and recommendations to ensure that mask wearing is the most effective it can be in preventing spread of the virus. First, WHO's Director General, Dr. Tedros, said in a press release last week that went along with the guidance, quote, I wish to be very clear that the guidance we are publishing today is an update of what we should have been saying for months, that masks should only ever be used as part of a comprehensive strategy in the fight against COVID. Masks on their own will not protect you from COVID-19, end quote. End quote. And while it could sound like he's saying masks aren't effective, I think what he really means is one danger of masks is that they can lure people into a false sense of security. Just because you're wearing a mask doesn't mean you should abandon social distancing, spend time in large crowds, leave your home more than necessary, abandon good hand hygiene or any other number of precautions recommended to reduce spread. Masks are just one other precaution that helps, but doesn't completely prevent the spread of the virus on its own. In their guidance, the WHO published a chart of who should wear what kind of mask and when. It's fairly generic, but essentially, the general public should wear non-medical masks in crowded settings when physical distancing isn't possible— when living in cramped quarters, and or when there is a known or suspected spread of the virus, all with limited capacity for containment, isolation, or tracing measures. And the point of non-medical masks in those situations is to provide a, quote, potential benefit for source control. Additionally, vulnerable populations, such as those over the age of 60 or with various pre-existing conditions, should wear medical masks in settings where physical distancing cannot be achieved in order to protect themselves. And finally, anyone exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19 should wear a medical mask in quote any setting in the community in order to achieve source control. The WHO also conducted a series of studies on different materials used for homemade masks and their efficacy. One thing to know, quote, folding a single fabric into two layers can boost filtration two to five times. Folds making four layers boost filtration up to seven times, end quote. You can go to a link in the show notes to see the chart breaking down various materials, but here is how they described their ideal mask design based on the results. Quote, the ideal combination of material for non-medical masks should include three layers as follows. 1. An innermost layer of hydrophilic material, e.g. cotton or cotton blends. 2. An outermost layer made of hydrophobic material, e.g. polypropylene, polyester, or their blends, which may limit external contamination from penetration through to the wearer's nose and mouth. 3. A middle hydrophobic layer made of synthetic, non-woven material, such as polypropylene or a cotton layer, which may enhance filtration or retain droplets. End quote. And even if you're able to make that ideal mask, they say it's still mostly to protect other people, in case you yourself have COVID-19. So again, continue to practice physical distancing and washing your hands. And to give your mask the best chance, avoid touching the mask with your hands, remove it by grabbing the straps, not the front of the mask, make sure it's not too loose and that it covers your nose, mouth, and chin, and wash it at least once a day in hot water. Last month, we told you the story of Captain Sir Thomas Moore, or Captain Tom, the Englishman who raised 30 million pounds, got knighted and ended up with a number one song in the UK charts after deciding to do a small fundraiser for the National Health Service by walking laps in his garden every day in the one month lead up to his 100th birthday. Inspired by Captain Tom's accomplishments, a 103-year-old retired doctor in Belgium is now undertaking a similar task. Alphonse Leampolz, and apologies for my horrible pronunciation of your name, Mr. Leampolz, is walking a marathon in daily stages in his garden for the month of June. Every day, he walks three laps in the morning, three at noon, and four in the evening. Each lap around the garden at his home in Roetzelar is 159 yards. As he walks and his bit-by-bit marathon gains publicity, he's raising money for the hospital attached to nearby Leuven University, where researchers are hard at work on COVID-19 treatment. He's currently about a third of the way through his marathon and has so far raised about 6,000 euros. In addition to being inspired by Captain Tom and his own daughter's marathon running, Liam Bowles was moved to help the coronavirus effort due to his past work as a doctor, and in particular, seeing people fall ill during the 1957 flu pandemic. He told Reuters, quote, As a doctor, you feel touched by this, and that's why I was happy now that I might be able to contribute something to fight the coronavirus. End quote. A team of archaeologists from the University of Cambridge and Ghent University have successfully mapped a complete ancient Roman city, Filari Novi, in Italy. This would be a fairly big and fascinating accomplishment on its own, but what makes this case unique is that they completed the mapping without digging or unearthing a single thing. Instead, the archaeologist used Advanced Ground Penetrating Radar, or GPR, to discover various features of the city, including a market, a bath, a temple, a public monument, and even the city's network of water pipes. This step forward in high-resolution GPR technology could be revolutionary for archaeological study because it enables the discovery of ancient sites that can't be excavated due to size, fragility, or simply having had modern structures built on top of them. Quoting archaeology and arts, GPR works like regular radar, bouncing radio waves off objects and using the echo to build up a picture at different depths. By towing their GPR instruments behind a quad bike, the archaeologists surveyed all 30.5 hectares within the city's walls. Valerie was just under half the size of Pompeii, taking a reading every 12.5 centimeters. The study also challenges certain assumptions about Roman urban design, showing that Valerie Novi's layout was less standardized than many other well-studied towns like Pompeii. The temple, market building, and bath complex discovered by the team are also more architecturally elaborate than would usually be expected in a small city." Professor Martin Millett, one of the authors of the study, said, quote, "...the astonishing level of detail which we have achieved at Valeri Novi and the surprising features that GPR has revealed suggest that this type of survey could transform the way archaeologists investigate urban sites as total entities. We still have so much to learn about Roman urban life, and this technology should open up unprecedented opportunities for decades to come." End quote. And while GPR technology could lead to all kinds of discoveries not previously possible, it does come with some limitations that will need to be worked on, namely the sheer amount of data required. Quote, traditional methods of manual data analysis are too time-consuming, requiring around 20 hours to fully document a single hectare, end quote. Fortunately, the researchers working on Falerinovi are already developing automated techniques to speed up the process. So hopefully this technology will only continue to expand and get better because just imagine how much more potential we have to study structures and societies we've previously only been able to examine the physical artifacts of. You know, having more to compare to one another could totally change assumptions we've made based on just one or a few samples. Something to keep your eye on for sure. If you find yourself drinking too much coffee or tea or energy drinks or anything with caffeine, it turns out one way you might be able to replace the habit is by going for a walk. Researchers at the Exercise and Health Psychology Lab at Western Health Sciences have been studying how exercise can improve various health outcomes, including a measure of cognition called working memory. Quoting Science Alert, Working memory refers to our ability to temporarily store and manipulate information to complete a task. Working memory is what you're using when you're at the grocery store trying to quickly recall the items on your list, while updating that information with the price tags you're seeing in front of you. It's used in our everyday life and is associated with how well we perform at work and school." End quote. For the study, they had 20 healthy adults walk on a treadmill for 20 minutes and compared that to giving them a dose of caffeine equivalent to one cup of coffee. Quoting again, our results indicated that a dose of moderate intensity exercise was essentially equivalent to a dose of caffeine in improving working memory in both adults who regularly consume caffeine and those who do not. This result would suggest that replacing coffee with a single bout of aerobic exercise could not only provide a cognitive boost similar to coffee, but may also provide other health benefits that come along with exercise, end quote. The researchers also wanted to dig into withdrawal symptoms, you know, those awful headaches and other symptoms you get if you're used to having caffeine and then go without it for a day or so. For the study, they asked any of the regular caffeine-consuming participants to go off of caffeine for 12 hours. After 12 hours, the lab assessed them for withdrawal symptoms like fatigue, difficulty concentrating, lack of motivation, headache, and grouchiness. They also assessed the participants' working memory, but found it was unaffected by the caffeine withdrawal, Next, they had the participants take a brisk walk and found that some of the withdrawal symptoms, specifically fatigue and a depressed mood, were improved by the walk. Quoting once more, So how exactly does aerobic exercise provide this cognitive boost and reduce caffeine withdrawals? Although there's still a lot of debate and investigations are underway, previous research has suggested improved blood flow in the brain. The release of neurotrophic factors, which are like food for the brain cells, and the release of hormones, such as dopamine and epinephrine, that are associated with mood and energy, may all be in some part responsible for these effects. End quote. So if you are trying to wean yourself off of caffeine or reduce your intake, maybe try incorporating some walking into your morning or lunch break. Getting outdoors and adding a little activity to your day is something that has a ton of benefits at the moment as many of us are still stuck indoors and doing what we can to stay healthy. So here's just one more reason to make some time to go for a stroll. Every business that's been affected by COVID-19 is having to get creative on ways to keep bringing in income and keep on going. But the North Sapporo Safari Zoo in Hokkaido, Japan might just win the award for most creative idea. This week, anyways. Like many businesses, they've set up a crowdfunding campaign to garner community support while they're unable to welcome customers, and among their perk offerings are blue jeans, custom ripped by the lions at the zoo. Quoting Sora News, "...those who contribute 70,000 yen, or about 639 US dollars, will receive a pair of jeans that has been mauled by the claws and teeth of the zoo's lions." If you're a fan of ripped jeans, it probably doesn't get any cooler than having a pair that's literally been torn at by giant cats. Contributors can choose which size pair of pants they'd like to have produced for them. End quote. But, you know, ordering jeans online without knowing the exact style and fit is always tough, so if you'd rather get another bespoke item from the zoo animals, North Sapporo Safari is also offering coasters made from beaver gnawed wood, a real parrot feather earring, A painting made by your choice of a monkey, seal, or goat, a private live stream of an animal feeding of your choice, or for 100,000 yen, you can even become head zookeeper for a day, presumably once the zoo is able to open its doors to the public again. The jeans ripped by lions idea isn't totally unique. In 2016, the Yagiyama Zoological Park in Japan teamed up with a fashion store called Loft to sell zoo jeans, which were designer jeans ripped and scratched by two lions at the zoological park. The North Sapporo Safari jeans and all of their other perks are starting to run low though, so if you really want to try ordering your own, you can go to the Campfire fundraiser link in the show notes. As of recording, they've raised over 30 million yen, or about $280,000. And finally today, a 60-year-old Italian woman recently underwent brain surgery to remove a tumor in her left temporal lobe, a -a two-and-a-half-hour procedure that went very well. So no worries, this isn't a sad story. But it is a weird one. During the brain surgery, the woman made 90 stuffed olives. Yes, while having her brain operated on, this Italian woman prepared 90 traditional stuffed olives. Ascoli olives, to be specific. They're wrapped in seasoned meat and a breaded crust and are a specialty of the marsh region of central Italy. But, well, I guess the olives aren't really the most interesting part of this story. So while making olives during brain surgery is a first, the procedure called awake brain surgery is relatively common. Quoting the BBC, "...it's used to treat some neurological conditions, such as tumors that affect the areas of the brain responsible for vision, movement, or speech." To help the surgeon try to inflict minimal damage on the healthy tissue, the patient can be asked questions or engaged in an activity during the operation. As the left temporal lobe controls speech, memory, and movement of the right part of the body, neurosurgeon Roberto Trignani told ANSA News Agency the method, quote, allows us to monitor the patient while we work on their brain functions and to calibrate our action, end quote. Commonly, patients will play instruments or other hobbies that keep their brain engaged. Back in 2013, musician and vlogger Charles Trippi even vlogged his own brain surgery. But there's something extra weird and wonderful about an Italian woman making a whole big batch of traditional stuffed olives in the operating theater, which apparently looked a bit like a kitchen during the procedure. So well done to the operating team and this amazing woman. I hope she recovers well and makes many more stuffed olives in her future. That is all for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.